Hello, health investor. Welcome back to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Dr. Ellen Vora. Ellen Vora, MD, graduated from Columbia University Medical School, received her BA in English from Yale University, and she's a board-certified psychiatrist, medical acupuncturist, and yoga teacher. Dr. Vora takes a functional medicine approach to mental health, considering the whole person and addressing imbalance at the root rather than reflexively prescribing medication. In addition to her private practice, Dr. Vora is also a writer, speaker, and a consultant for healthcare startups. In the episode, Dr. Vora shares why GABA, melatonin, and vitamin D are the endangered species of modern life, common roots of anxiety, realistic, effective ways to manage chronic stress, and more. She also answers some questions from Instagram followers, all of which were real humdingers. If you love what you hear in today's episode, I'd so appreciate it if you'd share it with a friend, coworker, or family member. I'm super grateful for your help in spreading the word about the Health Investment Podcast. Okay, it's time to hear from Dr. Vora. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Brooke Simonson, certified nutrition coach and host of the Health Investment Podcast. Here's the thing. You deserve to feel amazing. But here's the other thing. There are so many confusing messages out there. Week after week, I'm going to share tips and practices that actually work for simple weight loss and sustainable wellness, because I want to help you get healthy for good without any BS. When I'm not podcasting, I work with clients one-on-one, so visit the show notes to book your free consultation. And don't forget to leave a review so that others can become trim, energized, confident, BS-busting rock stars like you. Thanks for tuning in. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Dr. Vora. Thank you so much for being here with me today on the Health Investment Podcast. I was just mentioning off air that to prepare for the for this interview, I was scrolling through your Instagram and I literally could ask you 100 things, but I'm probably going to have to just stick to a couple dozen, but truly excited to pick your brain today. Thanks, Brooke. Thanks for having me here. I'm excited. Would you mind sharing your story and your background, um, specifically what led you to become, I see you're an acupuncturist, yoga teacher, and holistic psychiatrist. So your path to becoming those three awesome things. Yeah. So it's funny. Every time I tell this story on a podcast, I think I tell it slightly differently because I'm not sure I've really fully processed the whole journey, but basically I was a med student in crisis. I was unhealthy. I was burned out and really unhappy with my medical training and just felt like I wasn't being taught how to get patients well. I didn't know how to get myself well. Um, I kept just feeling like going down various dead ends with both respects. And so I went on this really inefficient 10-year journey of figuring out how to take care of myself and my patients. And within that, you know, I was drawn to Chinese medicine and acupuncture and Ayurveda, nutrition, yoga, breath work, functional medicine, you know, once you kind of get into it, you just start hoarding trainings and realize that there's so many different approaches to healing that are very compelling. And eventually I popped out of that um, and had this interesting grab bag of tools of how to help people. And now that's what I do day to day when I meet a patient, I think, 
what is actually happening here? What's really out of balance and how do we help somebody get back into balance? Did you always know you wanted to be a psychiatrist or were you going down a different path originally in med school? No. Yeah. I didn't always know anything. Oh. <laughs> I didn't know anything. I was like ambivalent about going to medical school to begin with and got there and like tried dropping out like every year and would always just not quite drop out. I was just like a creature of inertia and kept going forward. Um, and it really wasn't until late in the process that I was like, who am I kidding here? I was an English major. I love to explore the complexities and gray areas of the human condition. Like, I'm not going to be a nephrologist. I am a psychiatrist. Mm. And it, it, like, eventually, like looking back, it was always obvious, but I really resisted it for a long time. And, um, and then once I was in it, you know, even in the four years, of residency for psychiatry. I didn't really feel like I'd made a mistake, but I really did not feel in alignment with how it's being practiced conventionally. So that was going to be my next question. You say you're a holistic psychiatrist. So how does that differ from conventional psychiatry? Well, conventional psychiatry, it's um, for so long, you know, there was a stigma associated with mental health. There was sort of Freudian psychoanalysis and all of these understandings of mental health as like a mental in infirmity or, you know, moral infirmity or whatever, you know, there was shame around it. And in with good intentions, we really tried to legitimize ourselves and make it a science, make it objective, make it disease-based. And I love the idea behind that. But then in practice, it just means you translate symptoms into a diagnosis, and then you translate a diagnosis into a medication. And then you put somebody on Lexapro, and then they get sexual side effects. And then you add Wellbutrin, and then suddenly they're anxious. And you add Xanax, and now they can't focus. And you add Adderall, and then they can't sleep. And then you add Ambien, and now they feel even worse during the day. And then you increase the dose of the Lexapro, and then you change it to Effexor. And it's just like this path that you keep going down over and over and over again. And pills and money and time, and you come up for air after several months, and you're like, wait, does this person feeling well? Like, what What have we got to show for all of this? And I kept feeling like I wasn't totally convinced that I was helping people feel well. And that's that was really the crisis, was like to step back and think, like, how do I truly help my patients? So how do you? What Do you still use medication when necessary? Do you tackle everything else first? Or what's your current approach? Yeah, so I think that um, for the longest time I was like, um... I think of meds as like a last resort and we'll try to do all these other things first, but then, you know, if we can't really do anything else, we'll use meds. Um, and I'm not one of these people that's like anti psych meds. Like I, I have a lot of hesitation around psych meds, but I've also seen them help a lot. I've seen them work. You know, I don't think there should be any shame or judgment around taking psych meds. And if they're working for you, it's great. Um, but I've also witnessed so many people for whom they haven't been effective or people that, you know, found them helpful, but then experienced pretty intolerable side effects. Or um, to me, most damning of all is the process of getting off of psych meds can be horrendously difficult. And that's a little bit of a silent epidemic right now. So what I really think is the goal when I meet a patient, it's not to like avoid meds at all costs. It's actually to identify the true cause of imbalance that's creating these symptoms of depression and anxiety or ADHD or bipolar. And once I've identified the true imbalance and addressed that, 
meds are no longer necessary. Like um, most people are not depressed because they have a Lexapro deficiency disorder. They're depressed because they're inflamed or they're on birth control or they're micronutrient deficient or have a thyroid issue. You know, you name it. There's a lot of potential root causes. And once we've identified and addressed that, they don't need meds. They're just okay. And so I think that the holistic, the answer is like, you really just have to take the whole person into consideration, their physical health, their habits, their connection to purpose and meaning in their life. It all, they're all determinants of mental health. In your practice, what would you say people seem to be struggling with most? Is it depression, anxiety currently, or what are kind of some of the most common issues that people seek out psychiatric help for right now? I mean, I think that the best word to describe it all is anxiety, but I see a lot of different things. I mean, I see people that are really burned out. Um, not that many people are sort of calling this their number one diagnosis, but many people struggle with sleep. A lot of people can't focus. Um, a lot of people just don't feel well, but I think the number one way that it shows up is with a, a kind of dread, anxiety, nervous feeling. Um, that just kind of prevails all the time. What are some of the most common non-medical or non-drug prescriptions or interventions that you recommend? Is it sleep, exercise, kind of the common ones we hear? Yeah, when I think about how to get somebody back into balance, like if they're anxious, um, I'll usually start with a couple easy wins. One of them is stabilizing blood sugar. A lot of people, like if anybody knows the experience of feeling hangry, um, when you're hungry and angry, I think a lot of anxiety is anxiety, And it's like, it's when your blood sugar crashes and your body goes into a stress response and then suddenly you're feeling anxious. And sometimes that stress response from a blood sugar swing, it feels synonymous with a panic attack or with just like generalized anxiety symptoms. So sometimes I'll get somebody to do like a quick intervention with blood sugar is taking a spoonful of almond butter, um, maybe like an hour and a half before a predictable blood sugar crash. So if you know you always like kind of crash around 3 p.m., then maybe you take a spoonful around 1.30 um, and then I also try to move people over to a blood sugar stabilizing diet, which is like real foods and ample healthy fats and good well-sourced protein and switching your carbohydrate sources from refined carbs over to starchy vegetables. Um, and of course, less sugar and refined carbohydrates and even alcohol is helpful. Um, that's a good easy win. I'll always focus on sleep in my practice. I think that sleep is this like epidemic issue where because of screens and phone and all of these aspects of modern life that really mess up our circadian rhythm, so many of us are not getting tired at night and falling asleep easily or staying asleep through the night. What are some of your recommendations to sleep better? For sleep, um, I think the number one most important thing is you get the phone out of the bedroom. The phone on the bedside table means we look at it before bed. It gives blue spectrum light through our eyes to the suprachiasmatic nucleus of the brain, which disrupts our circadian rhythm, it means we don't secrete melatonin, so we're not feeling sleepy or sleeping deeply. And then it also is addictive. You know, we go down a rabbit hole and we end up staying up later than we otherwise would. And um, also when the phone is on the bedside table, we look at it at two in the morning. If we wake up in the middle of the night, we look at it first thing in the morning and it sets the tone for our day when really we should be setting our own intention for the day. Um, and then after getting the phone out of the bedroom, I like people to get strategic about light in general. So after sunset, 
making sure you're not having exposure to blue spectrum light and screens as much as possible. So dimming the lights in your home and maybe wearing orange plastic glasses if you are going to be looking at a screen. Um, and then, and also it's important to get bright sunshine in the day to also set the clock in the circadian rhythm. And, um, and then caffeine is something worth looking at. There is so much, so many of us are really sensitive to caffeine and it has a long half-life. So we could have a coffee in the afternoon and it's kind of like we had half a coffee right before bed. And so for those of us who are sensitive to reduce the overall amount of caffeine we drink, push it a little earlier in the day to protect sleep. I, for a while, was having these unexplained heart palpitations, and I used to have a heart condition, so I couldn't tell if they were connected to that. But I have a friend who's a cardiologist, so I was talking to him, and he said, you know, maybe try giving up caffeine or reducing your caffeine intake. So I just gave up coffee, even though I was only drinking it in the morning. But it was incredible, the results I had with my sleep. I mean, night and day compared to when I was drinking coffee, which was really eye-opening for me and unfortunate because, (laughs) you know, I love, I've since reintroduced coffee, but I've been diluting it to the extreme, you know, having maybe half a cup with half a cup of water first thing. And I'm still sleeping better, but yeah, I mean, I was one of those people who probably would have said, you know, I'll never give up coffee. I love coffee. Coffee is my favorite thing. And I wasn't even drinking it late in the afternoon, but It's really, really crazy, I think, if you're sensitive to it, that even that morning cup could be affecting my night sleep. Yeah, it's a tough thing to like be honest with ourselves about. I was the same. I had an on again, off again love affair with caffeine my whole adult life. And but I also was like starting to suspect that it was really not something my body tolerated. It would like make me sweat and interrupt people and not be able to sleep well. And um, and so I very slowly weaned off. And it's really incredible that you think you like won't be able to function without coffee. But once you're fully off, you actually just recenter. You become yourself again, but actually with more even energy, more consistent energy, and you sleep better. And it's like there's the ritual and the taste and the smell and the wonderfulness of it. And you just can keep that, you know, do decaf or dilute it or do whatever you need to do. Keep a lovely ritual in the morning, but just drop the actual milligramage of caffeine. Do you now have still a coffee ritual in the morning or do you complete, have you given it up? I mean, at this point, I'm now maybe three years off coffee. So now my morning ritual is like, it's like this tea that's a blend of like a hundred different things. That's all herbal, but you know, it kind of gives me the joy in the morning without the caffeine. Yeah. I think that was the biggest part for me, the morning ritual. And it's just something exciting to get out of bed for, but that's a good idea. I've also heard matcha. Some people say it doesn't make you as jittery or I don't know if that's true, but matcha is wonderful, but it is like rocket fuel sometimes. So oh, really? Okay. It's, I think it is preferable to coffee, but it is still a lot of caffeine and um, it's a good step down. But if you're really sensitive, it's probably still causing some symptoms. I think manage your stress has become such a buzz term. So I'd be curious of ways that you suggest just realistic ways to manage stress that you recommend to people. 
Yeah, I feel like any, I try to like even steer away from like bringing up the concept of stress sometimes because when people are stressed, being told to manage their stress just like stresses them out and they're like, I don't, I don't even have the time to deal with my stress. You know? But I think that um, I used to for the longest time, like try to do the whole like convincing people to meditate and trying to demystify meditation and lower the standards for it. So we just show up and, and just observe for a few minutes. But Overall, what I've come around to recommending is actually just to do less, um, basically to start to explore what it feels like to say no to things, to block out time on your schedule, to um, travel less, just to like simplify life a little bit so you have more spaciousness and not spaciousness that you fill up with like new and different ways of productivity and um, avoidance and escape, but actually spaciousness to just like just exist, like be in a state of leisure or stare at the wall or take a walk. Um, and so I think like a lot of mileage can be had from just simplifying our schedules and having more unplugged, genuine, like look at the sky and listen to music time. I love that approach because I do think that the current suggestions for managing stress, it is usually adding more. Like you said, mm -hmm. all these things could be still be great, meditation, yoga, whatever, but it's still adding more. So that makes a lot of sense to start by just taking some things out. Yeah. Yeah. It's like less is less and that's more. <laughs> so Ooh. it's like mm -hmm. preferable. Yeah. And then, you know, if you have some time left over, meditate, but overall just less. One of your recent posts on Instagram, you wrote GABA, melatonin, and vitamin D are the endangered species of modern life. And that really caught my attention. So I was wondering if we could tackle each one, starting with GABA. What is it and why is it so important? Yeah. So GABA is one of our most important neurotransmitters that allow us to feel calm and relaxed and basically not anxious. It's an inhibitory neurotransmitter. It's kind of like our brain's ability to say, shh, 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 you're okay. Like they're there. And um, I really think, you know, I, I said endangered species, somebody corrected me, they're like endangered nutrients. It's like, I don't know how to describe this. Yeah. It's basically, we, we compromise our GABA mod signaling in modern life through a lot of our different practices. Um, and so things like alcohol, things like benzodiazepines, that's like Xanax and Clonopin and Ativan, um, and then chronic stress and poor nutrition, which is, you know, su surprisingly common. It's not just like to not have access to food, but it's to not eat in a nutrient dense way. So just to eat a lot of empty calories, um, these are all ways that we contribute to our GABA deficiency and our, it's not just deficiency, of course, in the brain, everything's more complicated, but we basically compromise our GABA signaling with these behaviors. And so ways to build it up are, um, it's like everyone always comments like, okay, so what pill do I take? <laughs> it's like, we're all just so conditioned to think like, right. solve Which a supplement. Yep, yeah, exactly. And GABA, I mean, people can debate this. I, the party line is kind of like GABA. It, not that many supplements are going to successfully cross the blood brain barrier and actually act at our synapses in the brain. Um, maybe some supplement companies claim that they've managed that, but I think overall, um, I prefer to just build it up the old fashioned way anyway. So you build it up with good nutrition, with plenty of rest, with avoiding the things that get it out of balance, with um, healthy sleep habits, and even things like breath work and yoga and meditation and acupuncture, I think really do a lot to repair our GABA signaling. Hmm. And then what about melatonin? 
So melatonin, it's like a more straightforward thing. Basically, melatonin, our brain secretes the pineal gland, which in an interesting way kind of equates to the third eye. Um, we secrete melatonin when there's authentic darkness. Um, and that is really the problem in modern life is that the sun sets and then all these lights go on. Like the laptop is on our lap, the lights are on overhead, the TV's on, we look at our phone, there's ambient light pollution out of our windows. And so we're never really in darkness. And melatonin is like this shy little crab. And if you, um, one innocent glance at your phone before bed and any melatonin just is squandered, it kind of scuttles back into its cave. And so um, we, we just don't get enough of it because of all of our light in our post sunset light in modern life. And melatonin is a wonderful hormone. Like you don't want to compromise it. It, it gives us restful, rejuvenating sleep. It turns on our immune system and allows us to fight infections and fight nascent cancers that are growing in our body. Um, it's really reparative and healing. And we just have like less of it than we would have if we lived on the proverbial savanna. This might be a dumb question, but it sounds like the light issue is one of the biggest things impeding melatonin. So is it enough to wear those blue blo blue blocking glasses and to try to reduce blue light? I know in my TV, we have a setting where you can put it in night mode or something. And on my phone, I usually have that. Is that enough or it's really all light? You know, that's not a dumb question at all. I think that that's yeah. actually enough. That's more just like a kind of a tough ask. You know, like I don't have that many patients who are game to wear blue blocking glasses from sunset onward every day. You know, I'm uh -huh. not. But, um, but I think that that would be enough. It does truly block all blue spectrum light. It might be in certain ways like too much. And this is like the fine tuning of this. But I think that there's something really natural about seeing the different phases of the moon and those different levels of brightness. Um, I think that our body syncs up with that rhythm. So like you maybe want some exposure to moonlight, especially around the full moon and you don't want to block it all. But I do think that blue blocking glasses are great. And these days you can get ones that look kind of cool and normal. Like I still wear my ones that make it look like I'm going fly fishing, but they're just <laughs> the ones I have and I like. Um, but yeah, yeah, I've seen some very fashionable ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which, um, yeah, I feel like I probably should order a pair given how much I wear these glasses, but I'm stubborn. I was thinking I always wanted glasses and I actually faked an eye exam in fourth grade to get glasses. <laughs> and it, it worked. <laughs> I uh, feel you on that. I did that too. I never successfully faked an eye exam. I wanted glasses. I could have given you my tips. Yeah. Uh, and now but, I need glasses. Exactly. Now I, I saw these cute blue blocking glasses. So I was thinking, hmm, this could be a happy medium of not needing to fake another eye exam, just ordering some of these instead. <laughs> it's a win-win. I love that. <laughs> and then finally, vitamin D. Yeah. Can you explain why that's so important, the best way to optimize vitamin D? Yeah. So we're all walking around vitamin D deficient. I mean, I say all, like there's probably 10 people out there who are like, nope, I, my vitamin D level is 50 and I'm great and good for you. Um, the rest of us are vitamin D deficient. I know even myself, like I don't wear a lot of sunblock and I'm not that, you know, I'm fairly fair skinned um, and I will have a tan in July and still be vitamin D deficient. So we just do not get the kind of sun exposure we evolved to get. We evolved spending much more time outdoors um, with much more skin exposure. And now we what we do, I think we've gotten sunshine wrong as a culture. I think it was all well-meaning, but basically we, there's this cost benefit 
analysis that happens between the benefits of vitamin D, which by the way, are many, it's a hormone, it influences immune health, um, brain function, risk of autoimmune disease, risk of cancer, bone density, cardiovascular health, like it's, it's operating on so many different processes in the body. Um, it's so essential that our body was like, we can't rely on food for this, we're going to have to make it in response to something that's a given, which is the sun. And so it's like, it's that essential. Um, but now the sun isn't really a given in our modern life anymore. And so we are indoors, and we're pale, and then we wear sunblock when we go outside. And so we're so blocked up, we just don't get any sun exposure. And then um, I think that in terms of that skin cancer, vitamin D risk analysis, we got it wrong in the sense that when we go pale, 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 and then that one day you happen to like be at a parade or go on vacation, then you get a sunburn. That's actually putting us at greater risk of developing skin cancer than if we just had a little bit of low grade, reasonable sun exposure all the time. And then we'd have better vitamin D levels. And then the the obvious follow-up question is, can I just supplement with it? And yes and no, you can in the sense that you will bring your vitamin D levels up to a better number with the supplementation. But I personally, just in my gut, I have no research to point to, but in my gut, something tells me nothing in the body is ever so simple as just like one vitamin D level that we can measure. I think that there's probably more of a delicate web of interactions that have to do with how we feel in response to sun. So I still think that sun is better than a pill when it comes to vitamin D. How much sun each day then do you recommend? How much is enough? (laughs) I'm so frustrating with these things. Like it's individual. It has to do with our skin cancer risk and our family history and how melanated our skin is and where relative to the equator we are um, and how tan we already are. But basically, I think that um, we're in such a culture of like, we need to objectively measure stuff. And I'm actually trying to pull us back towards a place where we have an intuitive connection to our body and we kind of know I need sun and then I've had enough and then I've had too much. And for us Mm -hmm. to kind of have that feeling in our body. So you do not recommend supplementation or do you recommend kind of both and? I think it's, um, it's basically if you can get sun, go that route. And if you really can't, then supplement here and there. Like I live in New York City and in February, I'll take the supplement. Um, Mm -hmm. But then in July, I won't. And another nice way to supplement in a sort of more whole food way is to take something like cod liver oil, which contains vitamins A, D, E, and K um, in the liver. And that's a nice way of getting omega-3s and to get vitamin D in combination with vitamin K. So that's a great way to get your vitamin D in supplement form if you decide to do that. Are there any supplements you recommend for most people? For example, do you recommend a type of fish oil supplement to get the extra omega-3s or... I think that the things that are nice to have, like in your fridge or on your countertop, I think most people should have uh, magnesium glycinate, which is a great thing to take because we're almost all deficient in that as well. And it helps with um, digestive health and migraines and headaches and menstrual cramps and um, cardiovascular health and longevity and anxiety, insomnia. It's a great supplement um, and it's really safe. And so I like to people to have that on hand. I think most people should have some kind of cod liver oil or, or fish oil in their fridge. Um, and then beyond that, not really much else. Like if you know you're in a kind of 
therapeutic healing phase of your health journey, having a good multivitamin with methylated B vitamins in it is nice. If you know you're very inflamed and you're kind of working on getting that back in order, you might want to have a turmeric curcumin supplement on hand. Um, and then these days, I think it's nice to have elderberry syrup on hand, which is a really nice immune tonic. Um, but beyond that, I like to keep supplementation really minimal. And then your recommendation is get all of the vitamins and nutrients you need from whole foods. Exactly. Okay. So you also are an acupuncturist, which is intriguing to me. I dabbled in acupuncture when I was living in New York City, and I haven't found somebody out here in Oakland yet. But do you ever use acupuncture with your own patients, or do you recommend them to acupuncturists? Yeah. I mean, and I can certainly give you recommendations in Oakland. There's like a plethora of good acupuncturists in the Bay Area. But um, yeah, I think that um, I'll do acupuncture with my patients. It's sort of gotten more and more um, like I used to do like more full body treatments. Now I'll do auricular acupuncture treatments, which means like needles in the ear in a session, which I find is like a wonderful balance to mental health. Like more psychiatrists and therapists should have this this skill because it's like a really nice complement to therapy. It helps disinhibit patients. It helps relax them. It's really nice if someone's sort of in the midst of a panic um, and it's just working beneath the surface at balancing everything, increasing the flow of chi. Um, but um, what was the question? Do I refer out? Yes. Like I do it all. I think acupuncture is just a great medicine and I want people to get it with me and with acupuncturists outside of our practice. And um, just in general, I think it's really a good healing modality. It's cool how it's now kind of becoming synergistic with Western medicine. I think a lot of traditional doctors are referring patients out. I know I interviewed a fertility specialist and he was saying he's all about it for his patient struggling with fertility. So I think that's very cool how it's becoming more of a blend of Eastern and Western. It doesn't have to be all one way or all the other. Yeah. It was so funny when in the past, like it was so woo woo and confusing to people that they'd be like, why would you do that? You know, <laughs> it's like, it's kind of more like, why wouldn't you do that? Like it's mm -hmm. safe and it's helpful and you feel relaxed afterward and it works. Like it's just, um, I think sometimes when we don't know about something, we really knock it until like we've, it's gotten more mainstream and then we're like, oh yeah, I've heard that's good. <laughs> so. Well, yeah. And I think it's kind of like you were saying about diet. I mean, it can't hurt to eat better. There's all these things out there that can't hurt, and then some things that actually can have a lot of side effects, like some of the medications you mentioned or antibiotics. I mean, all of these different modern medical treatments. So my philosophy is always just try the least invasive things that could have possibly no side effects except positive ones and see if those work. And then obviously, there's a time and a place for more serious interventions, but yeah, we are in a in a funny spot with that where it's like we are so conditioned to be comfortable and at ease with these things that are like kind of get the seal of approval from conventional medicine and from the FDA and from the government. But like at the very end of the day, those are actually very frequently the more dangerous option. And the things that we think of as like some people would say it's too soft. How could that work? Or other people are like, why would you try that? It's too weird and potentially dangerous. Like all those things are actually safer and, and more effective. And we're, we're just, it's a funny place to be in where there's a big industry interest that's driving um, our kind of societal conditioning to trust a pill over food. Do you see the pendulum swinging at all or <laughs> not yet? I, in a way, I kind of feel like we're 
like both teams are, I think they're winning. I think they are kind of both winning. Like I think that things are definitely going to get more and more like pharma is doing fine. They're just, they're doing just fine. You know, Mm -hmm. there's still like a very, um, very strong current in that direction of like more pills, more treatment. Um, but then there's this growing movement of like, you know, it's happening in places like Instagram where people are really taking it into their own hands and feeling empowered for like self-healing and using diet and lifestyle to address their health rather than just going to a doctor and getting put on meds. Real quick, I want to take a break from the episode to share one of my favorite resources with you. One of the BS messages floating around out there is that eating healthy costs too much. Honestly, I used to believe this myself. That is, until I discovered ThriveMarket.com. ThriveMarket is an online grocery platform that's essentially Costco meets Trader Joe's meets Whole Foods. I love that I can shop on their mobile app and have all of my favorite groceries, everything from natural wine to 100% grass-fed beef to nutritious crackers, everything, delivered right to my door. Last year, I saved over $1,000 shopping on Thrive. I honestly can't think of one reason not to love it. To save a percentage off your first order and see my full shopping list, click through the links in the show notes. Now, back to the episode. I always post a question uh, question sticker, I think it's called, on Instagram before an episode to get feedback from listeners and to see questions people have. And several came in, um, but I wanted to ask you three of them that I thought were really cool from listeners. So one person asked, what causes clinical anxiety? Not just short-term, I'm anxious over this tiny thing hap- that happened today, but she was emphasizing the focus on clinical anxiety. Yeah, I guess in a way, I would like annoyingly push back and say, like, I don't, um, I I think the important distinction is like, is something just a passing feeling or is something consistent day to day? But like Mm. the clinical idea, like whether or not you meet criteria for a diagnosis to me is less critical. Um, You know, like if someone feels low grade anxious all the time, but they don't like meet criteria for clinical anxiety, like they're still anxious all the time. And that's still really important. So obviously, like a a fleeting feeling of anxiety, no, not a big deal. Um, We can all kind of work with that. We've all experienced it. But when it's starting to really define your life and be the overriding tone, um, that's where it's concerning. And the things that can cause that it's sort of like, um, in the very, like nature of the question, I kind of feel like it's, we want to be told it's genetic or that it's a serotonergic chemical imbalance. And the, the answer, the fact is, the truth is, like, it's so much more complex and actually, like, kind of less fancy. It's the basics. It's like if you're chronically sleep deprived, if you are um, micronutrient deficient, like you're not getting enough zinc or vitamin B12 in your diet, if you have a thyroid issue, if your hormones are out of balance, um, if you're sensitive to caffeine, if you're sensitive to gluten, if your gut is not quite right, if you have an imbalance in gut flora or inflammation in the gut or leaky gut, um, if your job is really out of alignment for you, um, if you're just holding your jaw and your neck in a tense way when you sit at Zoom calls all the time, like if you're um, if you're on meds that make you anxious or if you're withdrawing from meds that make you anxious, if you're drinking, that can make you anxious. Um, and I think also just these basic human needs, like if you don't have good community or if you're not connected to nature 
or not connected to purpose and meaning in your life, that can make a very valid, justifiable feeling of anxiety. It's your body communicating something's not right here and we need to make some adjustments. Is your recommendation for somebody who feels like they have clinical anxiety to seek out professional help? It's certainly the right thing to say, but I think that um, it just depends on who is your professional health. And I think that um, I love the idea of like increasing access to mental health care, but I know how that story ends. It just means we go and we see somebody and we get put on a bunch of meds. And I don't always think that that's like ultimately the most helpful path for some people. So in a way, I would say, um, you know, don't do nothing, but get involved with the right support system, like seek out um, somebody who takes a pretty enlightened approach to this, who can take a really holistic understanding and inventory of all of your, like your whole mind, body, spirit health. Like how are you eating and how are you sleeping and how are you pooping? Like it all matters. And you want someone like a naturopath or a functional medicine doc, or just a really good therapist, like someone who just really takes it all into consideration and figures out where you're out of balance and how to get back into balance. So don't do nothing, but don't necessarily just go to like Joe psychiatry down the block. Um, and you'll, you'll have a 15 minute conversation and walk out of there with a prescription. Hmm. Is there some database to find holistic psychiatrists near you? I don't think so. I mean, there's like seven of us. <laughs> so, Are you all in New York? <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah, oh, we used okay. to be, but now it's, there's, um, there's a handful around the country. We're all a little bit different and we all take a slightly different approach and we're all like annoyingly difficult to get an appointment with. But mm-hmm. um, most of us have started to like scale and, and make things more accessible online. Like I do online groups now. Kelly Brogan has her online groups. Like, so there are ways to get this treatment affordably and accessibly. So the next question was a doozy in my opinion. So we'll mm. see what you say <laughs> I love a doozy. Uh, yeah. So this person asked, how do you recommend letting go of a past action that affected someone else, which you really regret? Oh my God. Such a good doozy. Um, I know. Yeah. Here's the thing is that, um, okay. So I, there's this guy, Anthony Smith, that I was talking to once and he was like, five minutes ago, I was an asshole. And I really love that mantra of like, like we, all we can do is do our best in the moment, which can be pretty lousy because we're just humans and we're just learning and growing and staying humble and open to change. And it's kind of like not a mistake. It's part of the gig that five minutes ago, five years ago, we did really dumb stuff um, Mm -hmm. that we're not proud of today. We don't have to dwell on it. That doesn't help anyone to dwell and to sort of stay in a a state of guilt or shame. Um, that, That energy needs to be shunted and fueling something different. Like if you're just dwelling on the guilt, um, release yourself from that, but put that energy towards being openness, um, openness to learning and growing humility, basically, and just recognize that that's just, that's okay. That's what it is to be human is to have made mistakes. Um, the only problem is if we don't stay open to learning and changing and growing. So yeah, I mean, we, we do terrible things and if it feels right, you can have a conversation with someone like, good communication and and expansion of empathy can be deeply therapeutic for both people involved in something like that. But just give yourself some compassion and recognize all you can ever do is do your best. And in any given moment, you have imperfect emotional maturity, imperfect knowledge of everything involved. And you just have to like keep pivoting and adjusting and um, staying open. I love that. 
so the final question is from the Instagram follower is that she said, or he, most of us know about food, nutrition, brain health, gut health, etc. But knowing what we should do is one thing. Actually doing the quote unquote right thing is different. What stops us from doing the right thing? Why do we give up and self-sabotage? Mm, I love that question. Yeah. So um, there, it's absolutely true. And anybody in this kind of holistic health space ha- learns very quickly that we're, what we're really doing is behavioral psychology. It's not just like, hey, did you know you should eat fruits and vegetables and exercise? It's like, yeah, we know. But how? <laughs> because we don't live in a world that's conducive to that. So it's all about behavior change. Um, I, I'm going to take sort of two different approaches to this. One is that I love Gretchen Rubin's work where she understands that we're sort of different in how we navigate these things. Some of us are upholders, some of us are obligers, some of us are questioners or rebels. Like we really vary on an individual basis in terms of how we do with behavioral change. And to know yourself and know your blocks and your resistances is helpful. But then I also think it's really important, and this is the kind of more um, going against the orthodoxy. I just think that we have to recognize all the drugs. Like, so much of what we're stuck doing, it's not self-sabotage, it's addiction. And we understand that illicit substances are drugs, you know, that we get addicted to cocaine or heroin, we get that um, oxy, right? But I don't think we appreciate culturally that we get addicted to um, comfort foods, gluten and dairy and sugar, and we get addicted to video games and porn and social media, and we get addicted to avoiding being with our feelings, um, to escaping and being distracted, um, that we get addicted to just like any screen at night. Um, So we're just like across the board addicted to things. And I think so much of what we're caught, we're sort of like beating ourselves up for self-sabotaging, just recognize like, no, somebody designed something that addicted you and they did a good job. And now you're in that dynamic and it's hard to break out of that. Not because you hate yourself. It's just hard because it's physiologically hard. Um, And I think calling that what it is and identifying it is the first step in sort of breaking free and actually getting freedom from these substances that addict us. I didn't mention alcohol in there, but it belongs in that list too. Do you recommend small behavior changes so that they're sustainable usually? If somebody's hearing that and they're thinking, oh my gosh, I'm addicted to most of those (laughs) things you just said, would you recommend tackling one at a time? Yeah, yeah, we all are, right? No, no, just be overwhelmed and just give up. Yeah. <laughs> um, exactly. I think that, yes, I think that you, um, you like slice it however makes it accessible for you. I have patients that are like, oh God, you just made me want to crawl under a rock. You know, I sort of am guilty of that often. Um, and so it's baby steps. Think of this as like a buffet of different shifts that you can make in your life and you go towards um, the one that feels most accessible initially. And then that change will make it a little bit easier to make the next one. Some people just feel like I'm at such a breaking point. I'm at rock bottom. Everything sucks. And I just want a total overhaul of my life. And that sometimes is a beautiful journey also. And you can kind of just like clear out, you know, you go out of a pass in the retreat and like clear out lots of addictions at once. Um, So it just depends on who you are and where you're at. But if it needs to be baby steps, it can totally be baby steps. Like I mentioned at the beginning, like I, it took me about a decade to get from out of balance to balance. And it's, you know, there's still work to be done. There's always. And then the final question that I always have for each of my guests is in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? 
Uh, yeah, I really like that concept. Um, and it's actually the perfect dovetail to what I just said, because I kind of wanted to catch myself on one thing. Um, I live in the wellness bubble where like people are obsessed with optimizing their health. And it's sort of like at a certain point you come up for air and you're like, wait, to what end? Like, are we just like optimizing, optimizing, optimizing? Is it to, like be better than other people or live forever, or increase your health span or look better, whatever it is. And in my opinion, it's really never about any of that. It's you want your health to be a foundation so that you can go on and live your most fulfilling life. You want to make your highest contribution. You want to just feel lit up and turned on and engaged in life. And health is just the foundation for that. It's not the goal in and of itself. And so I think when we invest in our health and do these radical acts of self-love to keep ourselves well, it makes us able to live a fulfilling life. I think that's such a good point, being in that world as well. I mean, there's so much out there. That if I were to do every single thing I see on Instagram in a day or every single trend that's going on, I would not be a healthy person. It's kind of, mm. you know, discerning. I feel really good right now doing these things. Maybe I can add one more thing in. But just kind of coming into everything with that lens, like I don't have to do everything, uh, was kind of hard for me at first. But now I'm really, like you said, kind of coming back full circle to saying no to things can actually be so healthy. Oh, I think that's the key. Exactly. Where can listeners follow and find you? Um, I'm all over the internets. I am at ellenvora.com and I'm at ellenvoramd on Instagram and Twitter and even now, as of yesterday, TikTok. <laughs> so Ooh. I'm like such a boomer trying to figure out that platform. But um, And then I do online groups, which is a good way to work with me. It's the only way to work with me at this point. And um, those groups are actually really profound. They're really deep and we cover a lot of ground and um, get really real. It's a beautiful community. Had you started those online groups before COVID or was that a shift that you made? Yeah, no, I've actually already been like a pretty virtual psychiatrist before mm. COVID. And so this was sort of business as usual for me to do things over Zoom and, and all of that. That's great. You had the upper hand with all the tech and everything to snap right back into action. <laughs> I think so much telemedicine is happening now, but I don't think it's easy to go from seeing everybody in person to seeing everybody virtually. Right. And certain specialties lend themselves to that more easily than others. It's easier for me to, to do my work than maybe an orthopedic surgeon. Right. <laughs> that is very true. Definitely. Well, so appreciative of your time and your insights. And I learned so much from you today. So I'm just thank you. Thank you for being here. Uh, Brooke, thank you so much. Well, that's all for today. Before the next episode drops, I'd love to chat with you one-on-one -on -one about the BS messages and methods currently holding you back. You deserve simple weight loss and sustainable wellness, so let's figure out how to make both happen. To book your free consultation, click through the link in the show notes. Again, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Health Investment Podcast. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.